Hi, everybody. This is Patrick Rapol, uh, one half of Directors Club. Um, before we start the episode this week, I do want to apologize. We ran into technical difficulties. We had a whole discussion about Chunking Express. It was incredible. There was a laser light show. It was phenomenal. Minds were blown. But unfortunately, none of that actually saved to the hard disk. Now, um, we did catch it in enough time to realize this while we were talking about it in the mood for love. So we do go back and cover some of the things we talked, we covered when we were talking about uh, uh, Chunking Express. But um, that whole segment of the director focus is gone this week. I promise we'll make it up to you. We'll do a bonus episode. We'll do 50 bonus episodes. Um, just please love me still. Um, anyway, other than that, Damon Houks was an excellent guest, and I think this episode went really well. Uh, you probably won't even miss it. You might miss it. I do apologize again. Anyway, uh, enjoy the show. All the leaves Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us this week is a very special guest, um, all the way from ScreenCrush.com. He, he traveled here from there. Uh, <laughs> Damon Hawkes. Uh Welcome, Damon. Hi. Hello. Uh, good to talk to you, gentlemen. Yeah. yeah. Very we're, excited uh, to have you on, We're sir. very happy to have uh, Damon on, because mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, this, this episode's director, as you probably already know, is Wong Kar Wai. Um, which is, and I'm, I'm happy to have Damon on because he's the person who introduced me to Wong Kar Wai, and uh, Damon's always been sort of one of my favorite uh, uh, sort of film critics on the web. He has he's always yeah. very insightful, but yeah, uh, and he's always he uh, he tends to reveal his insight in very interesting ways, and um, so I'm I'm always excited to uh, talk with Damon. So we're happy yes. to have you on. Well. Uh... We should say that uh, I started talking to Patrick on the Chud message boards. I used to write for Chud under the name uh, Andre De La Morte until I uh, was outed, as yeah. it were. Well, um, uh, <laughs> that's uh, well, I mean, it's kind of, maybe it's appropriate we're going to be talking about in the mood for love because uh, I feel like there's a lot of refugees from Chud <laughs> who have now f- sort of found solace elsewhere. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, well, they, that also ties into Happy Together, but we'll get yeah. to that. We'll get to that. Absolutely. Um, I wish we could have gotten uh, also to join us on the show Quentin Tarantino because he's the guy who introduced me to Kwon Kar Wai. Yeah. When um, he released Chung, Chung King Express on, through his Rolling Thunder label mm-hmm. back in the day, uh, that yep. studio. And uh, I think I even wound up with a Rolling Thunder hat at some point, And uh, I, I don't remember if I... I think he came out with a couple other movies under that label, including like uh, some crazy uh, movie called Curdled or something, where it was about a woman who cleaned up blood from murder scenes. It was yeah. just just all these crazy titles he was throwing out. And Switchblade, oh yeah, Switchblade Sisters came out around that same time too. Yes, uh, Mighty Peking Man. Yes, uh, Detroit Nine Thousand. Good good times. Uh, <laughs> and they they briefly put out the Beyond. Did they? But, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see, so that's how I discovered Wong Kar Wai, mm-hmm. and uh, I chose to put him on the schedule because he's he's long been a personal favorite of mine. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited for this episode. And uh, and uh, he was someone I was mostly unfamiliar with. I I had mm-hmm. seen Happy Together in college, but hadn't really pursued him outside of that. And uh, I'm really happy I did um, because he turned out to be one of my new favorites. And how appropriate because I'm happy. 
that <laughs> Patrick and I are, are together yeah. in the same room after a couple of months, I think, of being separated mostly because uh, Patrick had relocated to Chicago and I had been stuck in Elgin. And now I'm finally in Chicago. Well, I, I've been here for a month or so mm-hmm. and we're glad to be back in the same room. Don't worry. We're, we, we have a one mic situation right now. But yeah, we're very close. We're, yeah, cheek, we're, we're cheek to cheek. Cheek to cheek. Practically. Yeah. Um, but uh, we don't really have any other news to take care of, so uh, no. why don't we move into what we watched this week? I think we can do that. Why don't we? Hanging round the house, got nothing to do, let's watch a movie or two. Put on Dracula. Direction's kind of stiff, but the ghosty is the tits. Creature from the Black Lagoon, and yeah, the Wolfman too. You know just how I do. It's what we watched this week. What we watched this week. What we watched this week. Now it's time to speak about what we watched this week. Um, Damon, uh, we usually start with a guest. Uh, what, what did you see recently? Well, uh, I watch a pile of movies pretty much every week. Um, I guess the major would be I went to a screening of. Uh, Cloud Atlas. Oh, ooh. and I really, I really liked it. I, I might even go so far as to say I loved it. Cool. Uh, I thought it, I thought it was great. Um, I was really excited uh, by what they were after. Uh, but I think, in, in some ways, the more interesting thing is that sent me to watch the Matrix trilogy again. Mm. Uh, and it, watching Cloud Atlas gave me a newfound appreciation of. These sequels, I don't think they work. <laughs> uh, but uh, much of what they're trying to say with Cloud Atlas, they were they were sort of roughing out in 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 those uh, later two films really? about about sort of uh, yeah the uh, the idea that uh, you know we keep repeating the same things and um, and the idea of um, you know understanding and unity and, and stuff like that. I uh, it's it's all there. It's just it's just not very good. Yeah, we, we had we had, uh, we had also we had Chud Ryder, you know your for, your uh, your former contemporary uh, Ren Brown on to talk about the Wachowskis yeah. on an earlier episode, and uh, we, we I basically needed him to explain to me like what what the point of the Matrix sequels was, and that was basically where I came to was it was more interesting than I gave it credit for, but like dramatically having characters that have no. Uh, that have no agency of their own. It's just really dull to watch. Um, yeah, watching watching a fight between machines and characters you don't know for twenty to thirty minutes on end, no matter how spectacular it looks, is just boring. It'd be interesting though if Cloud Atlas, you know, you get a whole other three hours to expand on ideas that the Matrix sequels, you know, had limitations with you know what i mean like you, you like they touched upon them those ideas briefly but kind of accentuated the action and the science fiction elements but i, I assume cloud atlas 
uh, touches on some of the existential, existential and philosophical ideas as well. Yes, yes, it does, and it does so uh, very successfully. I think. Cool. The pro- the problem with the Matrix sequels, not to get into that too much, but sure. you know they are fresh in my mind. Is um, it's it's like a lot of things uh, these days where it's like there's a couple of ideas, but no one's really mixing them together. So you have like hamburger and mayonnaise and in a pile, and not really even cooked. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. And uh, you know it could be delicious together, but. Uh, yeah, they, they they just didn't figure out how to yeah, weave it's... their philosophical and uh, yeah interests into a coherent package. Now, Cloud Atlas is something I'm really sort of excited about to hit um, sort of mainstream because the reception to it has been so mixed, and I feel so it's, divisive. I yeah, know people who hate yeah. it, and I know people who love it, and there are people, and I it feels like they're. You know, people who say, "Oh, you're you're being too easily wowed by it," and then there are other people going, "No, you're just being too cynical." Um, I'm trying to think of, I guess, another film that's sort of, uh, again, this is, again, me obviously not having seen Cloud Atlas, but it, it feels almost when, like, the uh, the fountain came yeah. out, and some people were really into uh, sort of how big and, and how earnestly uh, Aronofsky embraced those kinds of ideas and the story he was telling, and then some people were kind of turned off by the how it was that big, and it was, like, a little dumb, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Fountain actually is a pretty good comparison. Um, the, the interesting thing is, uh, to me, that the Wachowskis have basically been functioning in the mainstream until this point. Uh, and th- this is sort of their art movie. Uh, whereas uh, Aronofsky, I don't know if he necessarily revealed anything new with The Fountain. Um, I, I guess it is sort of an expansion. But... Uh, that's an interesting comparison. I'll have to think about that and sort of process it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's again a comparison. I haven't seen uh, Cloud Atlas, but that's just sort of the vibe I'm getting. Now, I do want to say, like, the trailer just seemed horrendous. It's not as it is it, that is the trailer an accurate representation of the movie because the trailer just seemed like every cliche you could imagine, one after another for you know like five minutes. I I would I would say not. Um, okay. I think also with a film like this, the decision was you've got a a number of main characters and they all show up in these six interlinking stories that take place in the film, uh, which means that you have uh, people cross-dressing, you have uh, white people playing uh, Asian people, you have Asian people playing white people, you have black people playing white people. Uh, There's a lot of makeup Hmm. and I think... You know, if if you can accept that that's sort of the fabric of the text, I think uh, I think you enjoy it. But I think a lot of people from the outset are just going to be like, "What the fuck?" Right. So, <laughs> well, I like those movies that make people go, "What the oh, fuck?" And that and that yeah. idea, I something I, I I guess I didn't realize that they were being so fluid with identity when it came to the actors. Because one of the things I was actually really excited for about this movie and about sort of the Wachowskis' future in general is. I don't know if there's ever been a more mainstream um, transgendered filmmaker. Yeah. Like, you know, Lee Tamahori got caught, caught cross-dressing and prostituting himself or something. I don't know if that counts, but, like, mm-hmm. um, up to this point, it almost feels, you know, you can see a little bit of that in in, in the Matrix stuff. But I was I was sort of excited to see what a... What someone given a budget and also given a very unique perspective, such as Lana Wachowski, 
Um, Do you do you feel it's maybe seen? Is it sort of pitched through that lens, or is that just? Well, I think uh, one of the one of the interesting things about the Wachowskis is uh, after the Matrix blew up, they basically refused to do interviews and sort of hid away. I think partly because. Uh, by the time of Matrix Reloaded, Lana was starting, or Larry was starting to become Lana. And one of the great things about Cloud Atlas, and one of the great things about, you know, Lana is, uh, you know, even through Speed Racer, they were sort of hiding. And th- this movie is out, and it's proud, and and Lana is out, and she's yeah. proud, and you know, God bless them. <laughs> you know, I agree. I, I I think I brought this up when um, uh, I had a friend come on and do a bonus episode in which he uh, talked about some movies he saw at TIFF and he was a huge fan of Cloud Atlas and uh, he, he, he definitely liked the first Matrix movie but that was, oh, he liked Bound as well but he wasn't huge on the Matrix sequels or the uh, or Speed Racer so he wasn't a big Wachowski Brothers fan but he absolutely loved Cloud Atlas and he mentioned that Lana uh, definitely incorporated a very personal touch, a very personal element of um, the sort of the transgender issues within the movie itself, which is really something I'm very curious to see those elements come into play in sort of a mainstream, uh, you know, special effects laden story as well. Uh, and I mean, you know, the, the Wachowskis aren't necessarily known for challenging filmmaking, but they, uh, you know, any time they make a new movie, it's it's it should be an event because they always yeah. take risks. You know, like uh, I mean, I guess. Bound is a more traditional sort of Coen Brothers inspired thriller, but even the way they, they subverted, you know, what you think a movie with with that premise and and that title is going to be, it's very different. Yeah. But I mean, The Matrix, you know, say what you will about the Matrix sequels, they're not uh, The Dark Knight Rises. You know, they didn't just <laughs> dumb everything down and make the action bigger. They they definitely tried to accomplish something. That you know, I think most filmmakers, given that same opportunity, would not. Um, and Speed Racers, the very you know, kind of crazy experimental, um, you know, pushing the limits of sort of ADD filmmaking without becoming you know Tony Scott or anything. You know, like so it's sort of. I, I'm always excited to see what the Wachowskis do. I, I'm sort of uh, I'm, I'm interested to revisit Bound because when it came out in the '90s, it was sort of the peak of lesbian chic. And I think I, I held that against the movie because it's two hot women who are having sex with each other, and it was just kind of like, well, you know, you got your movie out, so you know, <laughs> hats off. But you know, uh, I, I also used to work at a video store, and that was one of those perennials, where, right? You know, uh, both, you know, just horny men and yeah. women love the crap out of that. Just oh, lump yeah. that movie in with the Shannon Tweed movies, or <laughs> or why I think Wild Things might be another Wild one where Orchid it's, or whatever. But uh, I, th- I think it's I think it's quite possible now that we know that Lana is Lana. Yeah, that there may be uh, a little something more under the surface of the film. Uh, I I like Speed Racer. It suffers as I think almost every major uh, big budget action movie over the last ten to fifteen years of just being at least 20 to 30 minutes too long. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a point where it's just kind of like, are we, are we near the end yet? Are we almost there? <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I feel like that's a rule you can apply to pretty much, you know, every movie post Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, mm. 
Avengers is 20 minutes too long. Pretty much yeah, all the spider. I've, Avengers didn't feel that long. Didn't feel 20 minutes too long. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you're... I get it. Uh, I, I never connected it to Pirates of the Caribbean, but that does make sense. Yeah, totally. But I, I also feel like... Uh, like I think people maybe are coming back around to Bound. Um, the AV Club recently did an article about... Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was titled "How Craft Saved Bound from Being a Sexploitation Movie," which I thought that's what was, I thought when I was watching it in the theater. Ex- except the thing is, like, there's only one sex scene, and like, there's there's the seduction scene, and then there's the sex scene, but it's not like the rest of the movie is, uh, you know, like lesbians and boobies. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's yeah. not it's not uh, wild things. It's not there's mm-hmm. not it's not. It, gratuitous. It's all about you know the storytelling. So I never felt it like I definitely expected it to be a sexploitation movie, but it, I never felt it was. Um, it starts have, out that I, way. Yeah, I have to say I like Wild Things. I oh love yeah, Wild, I love. Wild oh, Things. I, yeah. I Wild Things is a very audacious. I'm not. I'm not lumping it as a bad movie. Just the kind of straight movie that was released in theaters that people will rent to to because they're too afraid to rent porn. <laughs> you know, like I keep hoping John McNaughton is going to make a comeback at some point. I really like that guy. His a lot of his earlier films are great. Well, I'll, I'll say this: the movies that uh, often people rented when they were cheapish to rent porn would be like Femalian, <laughs> really? which is that's crazy to me because that is like at least you could say, oh no, Wild Things has a crazy twisting plot, or like, mm-hmm. but like everyone knows what you're renting Femalian for. Yes, <laughs> you know. Um, so, but that's funny. Um, Jim, what well, did you watch recently? Oh, Patrick, what did I watch? Um, well, you mentioned filmmakers who, uh, don't dumb things down, and, uh, Damon mentioned, uh, this whole idea with Cloud Atlas in regards to not repeating the same mistakes, and how we're sort of connected, and we, things are very cyclical. Well, I rarely have time to get out to the theaters the, with how busy I've been, but, you throw in time travel, <laughs> and uh, I, and of course, I am a huge, huge fan of Brick, uh, and I really like Brothers Bloom as well. So I, I really lucked out. I managed to uh, get out to see Looper, and uh, it's been we very, all we all lucked out. It's ve- it's been very interesting. It's been very interesting to hear other podcasts uh, talk about it, including uh, Row Three Cinecast, who had like a ninety minute debate about it. And I kind of went, you know, I don't know if this is like the kind of movie that I mean, I I just enjoyed the hell out of it, and and maybe there's a lot of intellectual ideas going on within it, and I'm certain that you can pick it apart and really di- like dive into it on a philosophical level. Um, and I certainly thought by the trailer it was going to be this sort of like chase picture, like an action packed. Sort of updating of something like Terminator. Logan's Run, yeah, Ter- Ter- Terminator, Logan's Run, you know, a little bit like that, and it it, it takes a turn, and of course, I'm not going to spoil it for everybody. It's kind of a hard movie to have a long conversation about because there's things that occur that aren't revealed in the trailer involving once Emily Blunt comes into the picture that you don't really want to give too much away for people who haven't seen it, um, yeah. and that surprised me. Where it goes, it definitely surprises me. Um, and Damon, I assume you've seen Looper. Yeah, I saw it last week, and that was the other film I, I thought about mentioning, but we kind of went long. Um, I, I loved it. 
Um, I have I have some mild reservations because I was kind of yes. expecting it to be uh, a little more fun on some level. Mm-hmm. The, you know, once you hit the farm stretch, it, it, it there's it a lot slows of plotting. down. Yeah, it slows down a little bit there. Uh, it didn't bother me that it slows down. It, it just, I guess, again coming in with certain expectations, it definitely affected my viewing of it, but exactly. not not in a way that turned me off i was just i had to sort of readjust myself as i was watching it i think uh, also uh the 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 sequence with uh paul dano uh yeah. is, is so amazing yeah and it's it's so amazing that no one has thought to do that before and it's so horrific to me mm-hmm. like i was cringing but i was also like this is so great at the exact same time that uh i think it, it's like the movie kind of like I, I it took me ten to fifteen minutes to kind of get back into it because I was just like I'm going to have nightmares about this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know, no, that definitely completely freaked me out, and I like that it is kind of like this interesting amalgam of different kinds of genres, and and in a way, the time travel. I, I like the fact that Bruce Willis within the movie says, "Don't think too much about the time travel stuff," and I I like that. I really think that is exactly how people should approach this movie and I know that there's people who really want to deconstruct it and kind of look at it as like well you know like the the, the kind of people who would want to just sort of write an essay about it. well well that doesn't make sense and this doesn't make sense if he did this then that couldn't have happened and blah 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 and I'm just like for some reason and there have been time travel movies in the past like like Primer and Time Crimes where I kind of get in that mindset where I'm just like wait a minute that doesn't make sense. But I, I mean, I, I actually have not, I've not seen Looper. I've been, I, I, I've not got a chance to get it to theaters. But I, I think in the, especially in the case of Primer, like part of what makes Primer so great is it tells you to think about yes. it, and it's really pushing you, and it's challenging you mm-hmm. to keep it all in your head and to keep everything straight. And you know, um, Looper really doesn't do that. No, I, I, I wouldn't expect it to just based on Brothers Bloom and the way that. Uh, you know, Ryan Johnson previously addressed you know con films, and he's not he he's more interested in what they mean than necessarily the nuts and bolts of how everything fits together. Right. One of the most interesting things for me, uh, most interesting things for me um, so far has been Ryan I, Ryan Johnson up to this point hasn't made a movie this big yet. Like mm-hmm. he hasn't. Uh, I think Brothers was Brothers Bloom independent. I'm yes. pretty sure it was. It was, yeah. it was. it was certainly you know bigger than Brick, um, but it was you know it was still independent. Looper is not. Looper is what Warner Brothers or? It's well, it was it was independently financed. Uh, Sony, uh, but it was done for thirty million. I think uh, Brothers Moon was probably done for about ten. I 10, see. 15. Yeah, but I, I feel like this is maybe getting a you know bigger push than obviously Brothers Bloom ever did. But that before Ryan Johnson has always been one of the most open. Filmmakers uh, out there, he's like very engaging with people on Twitter right. and on podcasts, which is something previously like yeah, I think he's one of the first filmmakers probably ever to really embrace talking to people. Oh yeah, he about, was on Row Three Cinecast and on the Slash Filmcast. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to. It's not speaking out turn. It's certainly not speaking poorly of him. But he was going to be on this uh, podcast until mm-hmm. uh, you know it turns out he, he, we we never talked. We talked to his publicist, but. Right. It, it just turns out he was just much too busy. Oh yeah, he's got a lot of promoting <laughs> right. to do with this film mm-hmm. and stuff. But um, it's been interesting to see him, uh, and almost almost a little disappointing to see him uh, uh, engage 
people who are nitpicking the film. Again, I haven't seen it, so I say nitpicking just on the general impression I get. Uh, I could see it and then end up agreeing with them. But well, I think a lot of people are nitpicking it just because of how, um, you know, with time travel paradoxes and stuff, it's almost like their brain just immediately attunes to that and just kind of wants to go, I have to point this out. Yeah. I just have to. And I don't know if that's necessary to fully enjoy this movie to where the time travel itself almost plays like a metaphor and a lot of like the first hour of this movie is really awesome and it completely and it completely changes in a way that I wasn't expecting and yet I still loved it and I still loved where it went and I think it's a really satisfying sort of escapist entertainment but also very intellectually stimulating as well and I think the audience really dug it like a regular average ordinary movie going audience can have a really good experience with this movie and not feel uh, too overwhelmed by it, oh, which yeah. is really good. A really good I'll, balance. I'll say this uh, about plot holes. I mean, I, I've had discussions online sure. uh, about this. Actually, Ryan got involved in one of them. I think our culture has sort of indulged a uh, Asperger state of mind when it comes to certain things. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't understand what's a plot hole and what shit you don't really need to talk about <laughs> or isn't really important or involving in the case of the narrative because the filmmaker basically goes, you know, we were having this discussion about Citizen Kane where it's like, well, there was no one in the room when he died. But the way Wells is telling the story to introduce the character alone in his room, dying with no one hearing him, whether there is actually a person in the room or not is unimportant uh, what's being conveyed, uh, that sense of loneliness and, and, and emptiness is, is way, way more important than explaining how someone heard that. Right. Um, and when you get into these discussions about, like, well, how does this work? And it's like, well, fucking people can't swing on webs that generate from the fluid that come out of their you know hands, and people can't fly. And if we, if we start having these discussions about how it all works and how it doesn't work in not working, you know, it, I, I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. It, it, you're, you're ruining the fun. This yeah. is the conceit. This is the conceit of the movie. Just, you have to go with it. And I wasn't thinking about these things while I was watching it. I mean, maybe if I really want to pick it apart, I could, you know, I, but I don't necessarily feel that's, that is ex- that's how I want to enjoy this particular movie. You mm. know, I, I, I think that you can look at it in a way that's more about the emotional uh, core of, and especially when you think about why specifically without giving away anything, why Jordan, Jordan, Joseph Gordon Levitt does what he does, um, you know, to wrap things up. But I just don't, it's one of those movies that you can definitely have like a longer spoiler discussion about, and it could be very enjoyable for sure. Uh, So I, I, I don't know. I really loved it. I don't know if, I didn't love it quite as much as Brick because Brick is just one of these sort of like, holy shit, this is one of the most original and incredible scripts ever written, and I love the execution of it. It's a great idea, and 
I, I just this is definitely I think this is my second favorite Ryan Johnson movie though because I think all the elements again come together really beautifully and I have that time travel bias. Right. <laughs> I, but I do want to uh, just real quick. Um, I don't want to spend too long. But do you think that you know what I, was sort of what I was getting back to before was like uh, the idea that a filmmaker would engage his audience directly, like not in a not in a Q and A, not at a junket, but online. People saying, "Well, I didn't like that," and then he goes, "Well, no," because. Like, you think that's uh, the only other filmmaker I've seen do that would be like Joseph Kahn for detention, and that was mostly <laughs> just him sort of <laughs> being Lloyd Kaufman and just trying to promote the hell out of his movie because. Well, you, you can also bring Kevin Smith into it, too. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Do you, but do you think that is. Do you think that will become more prevalent uh, as uh, sort of the fight to get, you know, your film hurt, your film's voice heard out there? Do you think that'll become more prevalent with the, among directors? Or do you think that's just Ryan Johnson? I think it's Ryan, but also, I mean, you've got Judd Apatow and Damon Lindelof uh, also engaging the haters. Uh, you know, it's just the way social media works. You can you can yell at these people, and they might they might respond. Um, I think Ryan is a genuinely uh, nice person in his sort of online avatar. Sure, so perhaps, sure, definitely. Per- Perhaps you know. I don't want to speak of his character. Uh, of what I know, he he is that person. But um, I think that uh, I, I, you know he's probably just trying to be helpful. Yeah, and what's interesting is that he released a, a. I find this to be a weird idea, but he released a commentary that you can put on your iPod and take it with you to the theater. I think that yeah. someone did that before. I think it might have been Kevin Smith, or maybe. Um, I think yeah. I think it was Kevin. Yeah, that, I recall that happening before, but and I just can't I, imagine with like how loud the sound is in the theater, how that would complement each other. I mean, I guess you know you, you gotta just have adjust your volume levels accordingly. Whatever, but, but yeah, it's a um, weird idea. I almost want to try it just to have it, that experience, but I'm not going to pay ten bucks. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure it'd work just as well on video. Sure, that seems to be more ideal. But it is yeah. interesting again. That just shows how much he's willing to engage like, his audience. I like that and, interactiveness of it, though. That's cool. Um, now, uh, I didn't get out to the theaters to see any new movies recently. I didn't get to see Dread, uh, which I've heard you know mixed things about, but at, I've, at the very least, I've heard it's kind of fun. Uh, I didn't get to, to uh, see uh, Looper. I did get to the to a matinee. The Music Box here in Chicago has been doing a matinee series of uh, pre-code uh, films, and I did get to see The Gold Diggers of 1934 uh, on the big screen. That. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be thirty-four. It'd be either thirty-three or thirty-five. Uh, thirty-three, I believe. Then yeah, it m- might have been thirty. Honestly, honestly, I'm very bad. But um, it was uh, it was incredible. It was the first hmm. time. It, it's. I'm sorry. Uh, which one opens with Ginger Rogers doing "We're in the Money"? Thirty-three. Okay, so it was thirty-three. Um, that was the first Busby Berkeley movie I'd ever seen, Ooh. and to see it on the big screen is just remarkable. Even that. You know, comparatively to some of the more elaborate uh, numbers that go on later in the film, like just that opening in the money scene, which I'm sure any of our listeners could go on YouTube and look up now. And that's what inspired that big uh, musical number in Big Lebowski as well, that Buzz Lee. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I always... The Berkeley style is, is, uh, I mean, it's in Temple of Doom. It's it's everywhere. (laughs) Um, That's cool. And yeah, so I, 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 he was one of those people I, I knew by reputation, but had never mm-hmm. actually seen a, I haven't a Berkeley film. Right. Um, but I, I was just blown away because 
you know, I, I don't know if I've ever even talked about this on the podcast before. One of the things I really love when filmmakers do is when they create sort of a, a three-dimensional space. Um, you know, like one of my favorite action scene of all time is probably the hotel um, shootout in No Country for Old Men. Just because the previous scenes, you absolutely know where everything is laid out. and. Yeah. It's it's able to you know establish its geography immediately. So and you have a, an instant memory of where everything. So is. it's even yeah. it's able to cut very quickly and right. be very intense while mm-hmm. still knowing exactly what's going on and why you know where he's hiding from and what the vantage points are and everything. It's incredible, and so just even just the camera sort of you know moving through this space of you know women holding you know not not fantastic props. It's not you know not an, a terribly expensive but it is terribly complicated sort of elaborate just holding these uh wooden cutouts of nickels or dimes or whatever and uh it's just it was mind blowing and it was especially later on um the uh forgotten man march i believe is the closing <laughs> number of that one Oof. and just the you see the background you you like you just know that there are 80 people um, who are you know dancing and they're not all in a crowd. It's not a crowd scene. They're like eighty people and they're all synchronized. Yet they're all like three hundred, four hundred feet apart from each other. It's just mind blowing. And you know, so seeing it on the big screen was such an ideal way to to see it. I'm was really that the music box. Yeah, that was at the music oh, nice. box. Um, it just really blew my mind. And then luckily, uh, it's kind of a fun, uh, quick comedy. Uh, and in between the numbers, which I was surprised there, I guess I shouldn't be surprised just because they're so elaborate, but it wasn't, there aren't as many musical numbers as you'd get from a, you know, a Fred Astaire movie or a, or a, or a Gene Kelly movie. I, th- I think though that, I mean, there's a certain brilliance to how they do it. Uh, and you can see it sort of, uh, imitated in its way. And in, in a film like the Avengers, not to mention that, film, but the idea that, uh, you know, maybe you have a musical number at the start, maybe a musical number in the middle, and then you end with like three huge musical numbers back to back to back, and just send the audience out happy. And everything that happens in the middle is generally genial. You know, it's nice, it's fun, mm-hmm. but but when you end that strong, and of oh, those numbers are just they're indelible. Um, I, I highly recommend the Gold Digger series. Dane's is one of his best. Same with Second Street. Um, he's he, he is a treasure. Yeah, it, it absolutely. Singular. The first thing I did when I got home was go on Amazon to see if there was some kind of Busby Berkeley uh, box set, which there is, but it was out of my price range at the time. But um, and I, as so, I yeah, it was. It's just it's really incredible to see uh, sort of film manipulated like that and to see it just and just you know knowing the time that goes into it and I think this is something that I've I've I read off of you actually Damon but like musicals are sort of like quintessential cinema because they're not something that can happen anywhere other than a theater or a movie which is the music and the movement and the dancing yeah. and everything all happening at once um well it's the, it's the perfect combination of sound and vision because it doesn't work Without one of the other. Right. Um, and, yeah, that is, to me, pure cinema. It's the marriage of, uh, yeah, visual and sound and uh, and movement. Yeah, and some uh, of the sets were uh, influenced by German Expressionism and the uh, Depression era and stuff like that. Just, like, I like that idea of uh, incorporating yes, uh, the, the, the times. The, 
the, the Reifenstahl goes both ways on that one. Mm. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and then, and for, I, I, have, I have to ask, did you guys make it to the All Night Once in a Lifetime movie orgy, the Giordante thing? I think yes, did. yes, I did, and that was uh, quite an experience. Um, Joe Dante was there in attendance, and he presented this very, very long um, presentation in this very intimate space. It was pretty much like somebody's house. Like, uh, well, actually, I met Patrick in these series of uh, events and house shows where people would play music in in, in house settings. Right, basically. we both were sort of. DIY kind of folk yeah, musicians. Yeah, and this was very similar to that setup, only it was showing a, a movie on a big, you know, giant screen and, and, and a projector. And Joe Dante was there showing this movie orgy. And it, it, it hasn't gotten, like, any sort of proper release or anything, but it was all these... And it, and, uh, yeah. All it these, never will. Yeah, no, it won't. And he's and he told me that because <laughs> I was like, "Is there any way we can, uh, you know, uh, get this uh, get this out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray?" He's like, "No." <laughs> and it's just like a, a beautifully choreographed, strung together series of random, weird uh, scenes, and including just like uh, war propaganda mixed with um, exploitation and. Uh, very similar. To, I, I haven't seen Mondo Kane in, in, in its entirety, but just that sort of weird um, stream editing, of consciousness. Yeah, stream of consciousness editing style. Um, some of it went on a little bit too long. Just like some, like I thought he had some brilliant moments in, involving like these weird infomercials or these weird um, children shows with like just oh, Christian the- propaganda. The the Andy Devine uh, musical number with the with the with the, the mice. Oh God! Yeah, that was. No, I, I, oh. I've seen it twice. <laughs> um, yeah, that is something you won't forget if you see it. Just the yeah. creepiest mice. Now, is this singing. something that Joe Dante has? Because I, I, is this something he completed, or is this something that he does every year? And he it's sort of an evolving thing. Uh, he completed it a long time what, ago. What what it is was uh, back in the late sixties. Uh, he and his producer John Davidson um, would, you know, uh, there there was an entire industry of peddling movies like Reefer Madness and stuff like that to college uh, towns, uh, you know, where kids would get high and, or drunk or whatever, and watch these sort of goofy older movies that the, would. I can't remember his name. Uh, you know, like Mom and Dad and, and stuff like that. Uh, teenage Mom. Uh, and so uh, Joe and uh, John, I guess, got a bunch of movies that were either public domain or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that they had on film and cut it together into this sort of Looney Tunes-esque um, four-hour four extravaganza. I, at some point, it ran seven hours. Yeah. Uh, the the first cut uh, he showed at the New Beverly like five years ago, which was his first public uh, uh, display in twenty some years, I think it was like three and a half. Uh, but he's added more stuff back in, and obviously the materials deteriorated. But mm-hmm. you watch that; it really is the Rosetta Stone of uh, Joe Dante's career. Uh, you can see so much of what he would do and become in in the, in the piece, and uh, it's it's a special thing. It is, and I I hope it it becomes like. A- it would be nice if it became a Rocky Horror kind of event for people to but be able so, to check it's, out. But it's so, I mean, there can't be multiple prints. Like, no, there aren't. 
and that's, no, and he can't he can't charge money to show it. Right. That's the other thing. So I'm but, really uh, I, we're gonna we're gonna be covering him in in about a month, so that's gonna be exciting too. And I will yeah. uh, do my best to. And plus, our guest uh, Colin Suter, my friend, he was there in attendance, and him and I will talk a little bit more about that as well. So yeah, well, I, I I was thinking because I'd seen it, you might ask me to to be a part of the show, but then I'd say don't crowd. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it's I hope good. it comes back to Chicago because I had I was I was bummed that I had to miss it. Oh yeah, you you I know would have enjoyed the hell out of it, especially. Was, go ahead. I was going to say, was Scott Tobias there? I, I don't was hoping be- he'd go. I don't believe so. Uh, if I, I don't know what he looks like, and I don't think he announced his presence, but maybe <laughs> he didn't. He just left someone on scroll, a big scroll, and say, "Here you, here you." He comes, Scott Tobias well, he of the Club, King yeah. shit of the internet. I didn't check his Twitter or anything to see if he uh, if he was there or not. Well, because I know they did a primer on him, and I, I was hoping he'd go. Because hmm. uh, yeah, he's great and. <laughs> Scott Tobias is really great. Yes, I'm, I really hope eventually we'll get able to get him and some of the other AV Club people on the show. That would they're be all, wonderful. I'm a big fan of them. I have to admit, uh, he he didn't think much of knockoff, and it, it made me sort of sad. <laughs> knockoff? <laughs> yes, the Jean Claude Van Damme film. Oh, which I I, <laughs> I swear by. <laughs> what, is is knockoff the John Woo one, or is sudden? No, it's. It's Troy Hark. John Woo directed uh, Hard Target. Hard Target. Uh, Troy, yeah. Troy directed uh, Double Team and Knockoff. So the one with Dennis Rodman. Oh. <laughs> and wow. the one with Rob Schneider. But anyway. Oh gosh. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not familiar with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. Hard Target but, uh, rules. I really like Hard. Target. I'm excited to go back to see more pre-code films. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it, yeah. Because as far as as far as pre, as far as the sort of the pre-code goes, it was very. It's sort of fun to see, you know, uh, what sort of uh, titillating, uh, you know, in the 30s you get. I mean, Joan Blond. I don't, you know, I don't get uh, sort of crushes on movie stars too easily, but Joan Blondell, I'm just madly in love with. And you know, there's like there's a lot of scenes where girls are in bubble baths. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you do. You only have one crush, right? That's uh, Aliyah Shokat. Uh, Shokat. Shokat. That's right. I think it's how you pronounce it. And Joan Blondell. By the way, I have ones. been going back and listening to old episodes, and you on an older episode admit out loud to yeah. saying, "I will go see Cedar Rapids because she's in it." Did I? Because yes, I did, you did. But I didn't see it. No, you didn't. So I must have been being disingenuous. But well, that's true. That, I apologize, Damon. This is another thing. Where <laughs> I, I I needle Jim for sort of falling in love with different actresses. So this is an ongoing. It's because I'm human. Us. Damn it. What <laughs> yeah. well, is, uh, is this? Uh, Gold Diggers was that on film? Uh, I yes, it, it was definitely on film. Uh, I don't know how new the, the print looked good, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying it's yeah. a gold diggers, but mm-hmm. so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look up see what other because I believe the precode thing uh, series is going on all the way through November. Mm-hmm. So I need to see me some Buzz, Busby Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And you but, do, yeah. But, <laughs> but for all my magnetic fields fans out there, I will say that we still dance on whirling stages in my Busby Berkeley dreams, Patrick. Okay. I'm not one of your magnetic field fans, but I'm sure. No, I know someone out there really loved that. Hi, Russ. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, that about wraps up uh, what we watched this week. Maybe we should get into the director of the week. Of the episode? Of the episode. I think so. Yeah. Wong Wong Kar Wai. 
souls that are emotionally complex A style that's like Kadar meets Malik Lost love and loneliness As tears go by, I'm in the mood for love In these ashes of time, I'm always thinking of I ride the Chunking Express Why? Because Wong Kar Wai is a great filmmaker, and he was born in Shanghai. He moved to Hong Kong with his parents in 1963, and he spent hours in the cinema with his mother. After graduating from Hong Kong Polytechnic College in graphic design, around the mid-1980s or so, he became a screenwriter and director at the Wing Scope Company, where he worked in the production houses owned by renowned Hong Kong actor-movie producer Alan Tang. Wong's current nostalgic, artsy style took shape during his apprenticeship with Alan Tang, who also invested in the very first movie that Wong directed, The Mean Streets Inspired As Tears Go By in 1988. Wong's career took off when he directed the film Days of Being Wild, which is definitely a precursor to some of more uh, renowned work that uh, followed over the years. But then in 1994, a film entitled Chung King Express, which is this incredibly stylish film about the brief connections we face each every day, was filmed in this rhythmic urgency that seems a bit repetitive but frantic and also encapsulates that romantic intimacy and humanity that is consistently found in all of his visually poetic worlds. With this dizzying handheld camera work, we get close to the characters and feel like observers in this distancing world that may seem like we grow more and more disconnected, but with both Chungking Express as well as the main film we focus on here in The Mood for Love, this director finds grace and wonder in those fleeting moments of passionate desire and longing that seem to invade us. And at one point in the movie, uh, in the mood for love, a character says this feeling of love has crept up into him. And in a way, that's how I feel about Wong Kar Wai. His movies creep up into me in ways that are haunting and joyful at the same time. He makes movies about emotions and mood, and they're not necessarily narratively uh, simple, but they're definitely substantial, and I think you're going to find a lot to uh, um, discover and and, uh, appreciate the more and more you uh, delve into his filmography, and a lot of his themes are reinforced over and over again, and I never for once think that you will uh, be bored when you watch a Wong Kar Wai film. Um, we were talking about uh, Wong Kar Wai and, and Chungking Express, which really has been deleted. Um, I was saying that Chungking Express sort of um, starts this new chapter in Wong Kar Wai's career. 
Uh, he had done three movies previous, uh, As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, and uh, Ashes of Time. He made Chunking Express while he was sort of in this fugue state uh, because he was in the middle of editing uh, Ashes of Time and it wasn't coming together. So Chunking Express was done very quickly and um, it really created the one car Y that everyone uh, knows now and sort of parodies. It's worth mentioning that the uh, Criterion edition of Chunking Express is now out of print. Um, oh. Which I, which I was really disappointed by. I am I too. Saw. Yeah. Um, but uh, after that, he did uh, both Fallen Angels and Happy Together, uh, which sort of fit together, but also fit together with Chunking Express as he was sort of developing this style. And uh, if if those three films were sort of an experiment, everything uh, that he was building to comes together in, in the mood for love. It's uh, as, as I said before, it's a perfect movie. It balls to bone. Uh, just a, a great film, um, and it's, it's, the, it's a the maturation. Only, it's the only. It's only a film in the past twelve years that's in the sight and sound poll. Uh, yes. Top ten, am I correct? Top twenty, um, maybe. Oh, uh, it's it's one of the highest. Mulholland Drive is right right there with it. I but see. interesting, yeah. But uh, of the twenty first century films, yeah, it and Mulholland Drive are the highest rated uh, new movies. Um, so it, it's become sort of his Citizen Kane or, or verdict of this movie that yeah. critics are rallying behind. Um, I, I again because it's, it, he matured his ideas uh, to this uh, to this place that uh, uh, is everything he has ever made a movie about longing the past and of course beautiful absolutely gorgeous cinematography partly done by Christopher Doyle, but. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of a sharp contrast, at least not not thematically, but visually, to something like Chunking Express, and that was, um, like I said, I uh, within the mood for love is very old fashioned and uh, more straightforward in its approach, but still, but, but what's sort of interesting is he's still telling a story with a, in a very elliptical style. He's yeah. he's still when a scene when one scene ends and another scene begins, you're still not sure how far is it a week later than the last scene, yeah. is mm-hmm. it a day later, is it the same day? Um it's it's still very much a story told in important details. Internal um, yeah, just focusing on internal which I, the, which I, the characters which are I mentioned through. previously in the in the now lost uh <laughs> chunking express one of the one of the sort of things that makes him such an interesting storyteller is the way he do, he tells a story in in just very uh, sort of uh, uh, sensual and very important and very well observed details, yeah. and that they later on as the film progresses, you see them building to a to a larger conclusion. Um, I, I think I think that one of the the great things about Wong Kar Wai is uh, he knows that even though you know he's sort of coming at the story from different angles. And in this, you know, from telling the story of two jilted lovers, uh, instead of you know, ever showing, the, you know, the people who cheated on them, uh, that's that's just a, a great invention. Yeah, to, definitely. To uh, you know, I I'll get into this in a second, but the way he uses what would normally be cutaways, um, the way he shows things that are not that do do not feature actors or any performers, mm-hmm. is revolutionary. Um, but he does so uh, in, in a movie that, that only plays for like a hundred minutes. He he totally understands that if you're going to tell a story like this, you need to keep it well paced and and not uh, overwhelm the audience in, in an indulgence of 
two and a half hours, three hours, you know, this is sort of Bellatar kind of thing, I guess. Um, yeah, it's very he, skillful. It's very skillfully controlled in that way. I mean, before Espe- we... I mean, especially for a, a movie that, um, by all counts, he threw out the script while filming. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it did have the basis of a short story. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he started from a, um, a narrative place, but uh, he kind of sculpts his movies. And um, there are very few filmmakers who have the opportunity to work like that. Uh, it, it seems like from all the cut footage I've seen uh, in TV spots and trailers of The Master that Paul Thomas Anderson sort of worked that way with uh, some of his things where uh, he gives himself room to shoot. But, it, it, you know, it's hard to say. Especially um, with a film like The Master. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, I, hey, it's beautiful. I, I have very mixed feelings about that film. I have very mixed feelings about Paul Thomas Anderson. I think there will be but as a masterpiece. But uh, after that, it gets kind of fuzzy. We, uh, we uh, did a Paul Thomas Anderson episode that sort of, I, I fell sort of at the same place, and we're definitely going to do a bonus episode on just the master later. Oh, are we? Oh, definitely. <laughs> we'll need yeah. to. Uh, but we both it, want an opportunity to see it again, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a fascinating film. Um, uh, the, the thing I keep coming back to with the master is um, there is such technical precision in the way that he makes his movies and such technical precision in the master that the fact that the thematic content is kind of a jumble um, is counterintuitive to someone like Kubrick or you know other directors where it feels like everything you're seeing is a purpose. We've never seen someone who throws so much at the screen um, with so much control while doing it. Um, but it doesn't come together for me. Yeah, and w- with uh, with Wong Kar Wai, I mean, in, in the majority of his films, again, the attention to detail is really, really imperative for him, and I like that. And I especially like the fact that, in in some ways, he he does approach his characters like um, with, with a, a lot of empathy, and and there's a certain uh, s- sequence here where the um, the, the 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 two lovers are well they they don't necessarily um, become lovers but they 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 slowly um, uh, evolve towards uh, an intimacy together and they reenact or they sort of envision the yeah. idea of what their cheating spouses uh, how the how the affair became what it is and their their moments shared together in that hotel room. Uh, really stand out as some of the more um, expressive and beautiful moments I've seen in a love story. One, one of the most interesting things about those scenes, and those scenes are definitely for me, you know, for it's a it's a very subdued film. It's there's not a lot of films like it, especially you know, uh, in contemporary times that are so about submerged feelings and so about what's yeah. not being said. Um, and so subtle, but and again about repetition of yeah, scenes. Those, of, if, uh, if you had to pick something, music that's, that's the show stop, show stopping, quote unquote, set piece. It would definitely be those scenes in which they're reenacting um, uh, their uh, their companions' uh, um, adultery. And right. what's what's kind of well, crazy? I'm sorry. Go ahead. They're they're rehearsing for confrontation. Rehearsing the confrontation. Well, both that, it. yeah. Both I'm both the rehearsal and, and the yeah. and sort of trying to when they're having dinner. And there, mm-hmm. he would order that, and she's eating. You know, she's eating with uh, uh, the food with the sort of the spicy mustard or whatever, and and it's it's what because it's what his wife would eat, not necessarily what he would eat, or not what she would eat. 
But what's kind of interesting about this is when they're reenacting things and when they're playing um, sort of off each other, they don't take on a role. Like, uh, like um, you know, Tony Long never like when he is playing uh, Mrs. Chan's uh, husband, he doesn't put on a different voice. He doesn't take on a different demeanor. Right. Um, and it's kind of again just sort of. It, it both works as far as them real like you understand they're actually really they're not it's not just them getting their anger out they're really trying to emphasize empathize and and sort of understand their spouses but also at the same time it it just brings the sexual tension to those reenactments oh, and you're totally. wondering will this reenactment constant you know it's like almost too much empathy way? it's almost too much empathy going right, on cuz they and they feel and and again there's no there's, I don't think there's any spoken feelings about I've begun to fall in love with you. There's no, there's no big moments. There's no shouting. I don't care what they like. Yeah, it is all subdued, and it's in those moments where they are play acting where those feelings come out, and it's so powerful. I, I have to imagine that this is this that those scenes were the basis for what became certified copy. Oh, that's I, a I good point. Say, yeah, that's I very true. There, there's, there's a lot of certified copy in there. I, I'm going to say something that's very roundabout, but. Um, I'll get to my point. Uh, Matt Groening, uh, when he did uh, Life is Hell, uh, had Akbar and Jaff, uh, the, this gay couple. Uh, I, I'm sure you guys have read Life is Hell. Yeah. And when, when asked why were they gay, uh, Gr- Matt Groening would say, they're gay because that way I'm not saying, oh, this is what men do or this is what women do. It's <laughs> more a conversation about what people do in relationships. And I think that one why sort of apply that with happy together um in, in the sense that like what i think makes happy together so powerful is that he's not saying oh you know tony lung is is being the woman here or you know it's not about sort of coded um gender roles it's about how people function in relationships and in some ways you know alphas and betas and how uh that 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 power struggle can change one of the most interesting things to me about in the mood for love was uh, when Wong Kar Wai shot it, um, their respective spouses were played by Tony Lung and Maggie Chung. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So, hmm. into in, what you're saying, uh, it's interesting that they don't change things. But yeah, in the original conception, they played uh, their own doppelganger. So when you uh, see the back of when you see the back hmm. of Mrs. Chan's husband, it's actually Tony Lung and. Yeah, and, and uh, though there are some shots with his wife and, and Maggie Chung, yeah, the, the original conception was that they played both parts. And I, I do like the way that Wong Kar Wai, you know, sort of the similar, and you have to sort of, what I was saying about Chung Kang Express and the way he tells stories, you so have to settle into his um, sort of method of storytelling. I like the way he then subverts it um, in that first scene in the writing apartment um, yeah. in which you see her confronting and you don't know at first that it is Tony Lung, you think that she's actually confronting him, and because he's already set up a uh, sort of film grammar as if you see the back of someone's head, that means it's their spouse because I'm not going to show their face, um, which makes yeah that that adds a whole other which interesting makes that, layer to it. Yeah, though. which makes that scene so much more powerful when it's revealed that it's, it's like rehearsal, focusing and, on how elusive and ambivalent these uh, like spaces between. What we feel and what we want, and so, are. <laughs> something that uh, that he does throughout, which I, I find it's not it's it's certainly not something he invented, but he does it a little differently than most people. Um, is he'll uh, he'll use slow motion to sort of uh, highlight 
um, you know, an event in which a character is having an epiphany during an ordinary moment. Yeah, here there's um, no that usual sort of strobe effect I mentioned with Chunking no, Express. It's, it's, it's just, all slow I think motion. It's, right, it's actual, like, uh, you know, just more frames per second. Yeah. But, um, but, I mean, he does it in Fallen Angels. It'll just be someone just bringing a cigarette to their lips or someone just finishing their noodles. It'll, you'll just... and But because he's so specific... You know what that means, despite yeah. the fact there's no outward signifiers that that moment where uh, uh, where Maggie Chung is leaving for noodles and Tony Lung is arriving to get noodles, and it's and you, at this point they haven't established that they are you know falling for each other and they haven't established even a relationship. Just that incredible slow motion where they're passing each other. Um, it's loaded. Yeah, mm-hmm. and but it's he's loaded. and he's able and he's able to do that, and it doesn't feel out of place. You don't know, wait, what's going on? Like you absolutely yeah. understand what's happening, and and I think that's a kind of a brilliant. Uh, that's just sort of just shows how methodical he is. Now I do want to talk about the end of In the Mood for Love. Um, just so you know, Damon, our spoiler policy is that anything older than two years, we'd we're going to spoil because we'd rather be able to have a free conversation than have to talk around things. So we'll, we can talk about the end of in the movie. Not that, not that the end, but, but I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> not, not that the, not that in the mood for love, uh, it had necessarily has an ending that is shocking or at all. Yeah. Oh no. It doesn't no. feel inevitable from the beginning, but oh gosh, yeah, I do want to talk. Cause I, I, I felt maybe, um, at the very end, uh, they did miss each other. They he they had an opportunity. He offers her a flight to the Philippines, and she doesn't take it. And she's right. about to take it when she calls him again, but she can't bring herself to, to talk. And then right. after that, we get another about ten minutes of them realizing, which is amazing to me that you know it doesn't just end where it ends. It ends with them sort of realizing that it has ended. Um, and then yeah, you have the the misconnection of him going back to the. Uh, the old apartments where he doesn't oh, that realize that me. she's moved in. Uh, he also doesn't see that she has a child yeah. uh, who may or may not be his. I didn't even read it as that. Do you, I thought it was that they unambigu- unambiguously never uh, never consummated their sort of relationship. Do you think it's possible that that's his child? Um, well, in the deleted scenes, they do consummate it. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the, um, I, I think it's up to the viewer. I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, um, I, I, it's like what's in the briefcase. I don't, I don't care to know. You right. know, like it's I have necessary. my theory. Yeah. The the ambiguity is the point. Yeah, um, sure. Um, if if it makes it a better movie for you that they didn't actually fuck, hey, you know, <laughs> there's that. If it makes it a better movie for you, if they did fuck. Um, you do have the dialogue. We thought we were different than them, but it turns out mm. we're not. Which I I would I would suggest yeah. is confirmation that they they probably did something about it. But that you know you can read that as also that they know that they've fallen for each other, and it's True. like we thought we were different than them. It could be it emotional out, or physical. Yeah, um, intimacy. Yeah, yeah. That's I, uh, that's something I I don't think I even considered. I, I thought the whole point of it was. That that they didn't, and then that was what was killing them. But that does that that is interesting, and that's a good point. That even if they did, that doesn't mean that then she would leave with him for the Philippines. That doesn't mean that she would. I, I, I think these characters are defined by their uh, you know betaness. That the, that they're not aggressive people. 
Um, so they they may have had sex, but I mean, like they'd be racked with guilt because that's who they are. And it's it's funny that their debating sure. pl- plays out in these kind of uh, 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 what what are they called? Wuju the uh, the martial arts sort of serials. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so the I, I think that's something that maybe sort of comes in. Uh, I I've seen twenty forty six, but I saw it when it first came to video, and that was I would I would say is before. I was was a reliable <laughs> sort of narrator when it comes to my taste in movies and stuff, but that's sort of about sort of uh, someone's fiction and their fantasy life um, and how that comments on how their actual life and. Well, uh, yeah, I like twenty forty six. I mean, I I tend to separate Wong Kar Wai's films into majors and minors. I think. Right. Um, I think I think the majors are um, Days of Being Wild, Chunky Express. Happy together in the mood for love, and I'd say twenty forty six. You know, I, I like all of his movies. I, I own all of his movies. I even own that uh, triptych film he did with Steven Soderbergh and Eros. Uh, Eros, yeah, with yeah. Michelangelo and Antonioni. Even though I don't, I'm not really crazy about it, um, <clears throat> such as fandom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but twenty forty six is is definitely the um, amnesiac to. Uh, to uh, yeah, to the in the mood for love's kid A, and it's like how much you get out of twenty forty six is sort of it's like well he's stripping out all kind of the fun stuff and, and the things that make it interesting and it's such a uh, you know he's he's one of those guys who can get into a cutting room and stay there for years literally <laughs> yeah well I think what's interesting about Wong Kar Wai too I mean even though we lost some of the conversation regarding Chunking Express I think the more of his films that you watch the more of his themes are reinforced because yeah. they're very similar and like I mentioned like the idea of his you know human connections in this in this sort of like um, uh, kind of like uh, distancing way becomes uh, we we feel like we're really connected together, but then we we come across these circumstances where we're um, we find ourselves vulnerable, or we want to be close to someone and we can't, and we're torn apart by change or circumstances. And I feel like his movies really capture it visually, and these characters yeah. always always like just get so close and then something drives them apart. And I feel like in almost every single movie, and we could sort of uh, go into Fallen Angels because I think that's a, definitely one of his major works. Uh, there's, there's definitely that reoccurring theme that is also explored in there, Chunking Express. There's a, there's a it's visual, like an extension of Chunking there's a, Express. There's a visual motif in Days of Being Wild that I noticed in a couple of his other movies, but yeah. it's mostly in Days of Being Wild where he has this thing where he'll have two characters in the frame, but only one will be at focus at a time right, during right, the right, conversation. Right, yeah. um, well, I, 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 and the foreground I, will be in the you know in focus right. and the background won't. I, I, I like Fallen Angels. I think it's a good film, but my problem with it is that... Um, the the genre elements of the hitman and stuff, I think he he sort of did that better with Chunking Express. Though I think Chunking Express starts starts well, and I like that section. That's more fun mm-hmm. for sort of how he's playing with language and stuff. Um, but I think the heart of the movie is is the second half. Um, I was going to say that you know the, the one of the great things about Wong Kar Wai is I don't know if it's by intention or design, but most movies are about people who achieve things. You know, right. it's, it's you know it, it, they're about you know it's like you run into a girl 
at, at a coffee shop or whatever, and you have that conversation, the narrative goes from there. One Car Wise films are about you have that conversation at the coffee shop and you never talk to that person again, and then you feel miserable about it. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is uh, I think, the situation that I think we're, we're all familiar with. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, th- those moments where you think, uh, later, it's like, oh, that was going really well. I should have done something about it. Um, and uh, you, most movies don't focus on that. And I think Wong Kar Wai proved that it's just as cinematic to to deal with the reality as it is to deal with the fantasy. Mm-hmm. And speaking of fantasy, Fallen Angels. How about those that masturbation scene? Is there a, what? Which is the sadder masturbation scene, Mulholland <laughs> Drive or Fallen Angels? That we should start compiling a top five sad masturbation scenes. Well, then right we'd now. Have to, but then we have to include American Horror Story, and that would just oh, ruin everything. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> happiness. Yeah, no, oh, was, happiness. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, how many? How many? I'm trying to think of positive masturbation scenes. That's uh, yeah, that's true. Even mm. even something like. Black Swan, it's it it gets undercut. Oh yeah, it starts off happy, but then I'm, I'm sure I'm sure somewhere out there there's some coming of age film where a girl, no pun intended, yeah, where a girl you know learns about her sexuality and the big climax, uh, no <laughs> no pun intended, is that she can masturbate freely and happily. Um, or yeah, I, I, well, okay. slums of Beverly the Hills. Right, there's a scene. The right stuff has a uh, very positive uh, masturbation scene, but it's a joke. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. But um, no, you really responded to Fallen of Angels, right? Well, didn't you? I yeah. Here's the thing about I feel Fallen Angels and chunking, and I I do need to watch both again because again, I'm I get so thrown off by the fact that he tells stories so differently than any other filmmaker that I'm I'm used to dealing with, which I really like. Oh uh, no, I, I I definitely like it too. But while I was watching Fallen Angels, I'm like, what is going on? How is this all tying together? And then it just slowly dawns on me. Um, in ways that when I look back, it's almost embarrassing that it took Matt long. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of... Like piecing together a dream and then all of a sudden it makes sense. The idea of, uh, was it uh, was it Takashi Kaneshiro in uh, in Fallen Angels who is the ex-con who's on the... who keeps occupying stores? Yeah, yes. You? Yeah, and yes, like, yes, yes, like yes. that is such... And, you know, and Wong Kar Wai, not so much in the mood in the mood for love. He directly sort of addresses the story, but Wong Kar Wai deals in so many just metaphors after metaphor. And so, until you know where the character is coming from and where the character is going, it can be hard to sort of discern the metaphor. But then, when you look back on it, you're like, oh, he just occupies stores, and mm-hmm. he he needs to be close to people. So he sort of he kidnaps an entire person's family to feed them <laughs> ice cream because he wants to be near people. And yeah. And, you know, it's not fair to the stores that he, you know, occupies because, you know, because he's taking from them and he's not giving anything. Yeah, that's about relationships. But until he has that final monologue about it, um, uh, you know, about it, then it's I don't get it. So I and and sometimes other, you just have to hold on for the. So, wait. I mean, maybe it's just because Fallen Angels was the first uh, sort of movie I saw while I was preparing for the episode. But I think it's also. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm kind of a depressive, and the idea that Fallen Angels is a lot more uh, negative than than Chunking Express. Chunking Express it ends with with the magic of possibility. Yay! And Fallen Angels, that's more me. <laughs> and, and, Fall, and Fallen Angels is more about sort of the defeated acceptance that you know, sort of it it more depressive. I always bring this up because it always gets brought up, but sort of the Annie Hall. We do it 
we do it because we need the eggs. Mm-hmm. Like the sort of depressed, depressive acceptance that none of these relationships are going to go anywhere, but we need them sure. because I need to stay warm. And it was yeah. fun for a little bit. And I, I, so I guess I responded more to the depressive angle. I don't think it's as fun as Chungking Express. I don't think it's as um, colorful as Chungking Express. But I do, I do respond emotionally more to something like Fallen Angels. I, I think, um, uh, you know, with Chungking Express and with Fallen Angels, uh, more and my Blueberry Nights more so than any of his other work. He is, uh, and we talked about this before, but we lost it. God damn it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He he is he is he comes very close to being on the edge of being precious, uh, based sure. on the novel Push by Sapphire. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, with Fallen Angels, there's definitely uh, definitely cuteness uh, to to some of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I but I would say even more than Chung King's because I don't would say there's not a Fei yeah. Wong character. In Fallen Angels, as as much as Takashi Kaneshiro it, it sort of is like that, like I would say, there's a lot like what I was talking about before. Before it got lost to the abyss, goddamn it, is that sort of the thing he does with Quirk better than maybe even you know Wes Anderson or Moran July or any other filmmakers who I think actually do a good job with this is they directly tie the Quirk to this sort of right this kind of emotional trauma or this neediness or this kind of dark. Uh, feeling and it doesn't feel like he's trying to um, it doesn't feel like he's trying to impress you or he's trying to enchant you with how crazy these characters are and how fun they are um, and I think that's even more true of Fallen Angels than it is of Chunking Express. Well, I think also you have, I mean, Wong Kar Wai is, is an incredibly influential filmmaker, and when you are like that, um, a lot of these things that he does when they're done poorly by other people. Uh, don't necessarily reflect poorly on him, but can mm. can mute um, what he does well. I mean, as as I said before, I, I think when you look at the Fei Wong section of Chunking Express, um, you can see that as the blueprint for Amelie. And I, I don't like Amelie because I feel I feel like it's way 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 forced. Uh, but you know, it's like when you look at these things that he probably had an influence on, um, they often don't do it as well. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. It's like I mean, watching it now, whereas in 1995 when I saw Chunking Express, I wasn't thinking of Fei Wong as a manic pixie dream girl sort of archetype. The, the, the term had not, had of been, course, had years to be invented. No, but yeah. I was just thinking of her, wow, she's just a really sort of cool, outgoing, optimistic kind of a you know quirky individual that just happens to really like the mamas and papas. And gravitates towards this song as probably kind of a you know a metaphorical escape, like she just wants to get up out of out of her environment. And, and again, and again, it's it's he deals in metaphors. And well, Calif- yeah. California dreaming. It's not. It's not a. It, it, it's and not the a, cranberry it's not song a, she listens to is called Dreams. Right. It's not. It's <laughs> not a. He 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 has the good taste to not be obnoxious about it, but it is. It's also uh, quite clear after the fourth time you hear it that. Um, when she seems to be having a grand old time, you know, taking care, uh, taking care of Tony Long and everything, it's clear that she's she's actually yearning for something more than working at a snack shop. And don't you just feel like cleaning your apartment when you watch that scene? Like, right. oh my god, I just want to put on the cranberries and clean my apartment now. That is exciting. <laughs> well, I think you know, again, uh, for someone who who dabbles so much in 
uh, improv and and you know is notorious for making movies without scripts. Everything in the films is incredibly considered. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, for for me and many of my friends, and I'm sure for actually most people, overhead shots of cities um, is like the most cliche shot in cinema, specifically action movies. But it's like Chicago, you know, the camera goes overhead. You know what I'm talking mm, about? Yeah, right over the skyscraper. Michael Mann. It's like, whoa. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, generally it's straight down or whatever. And it's like, or it's just the cityscape. It's like, I, you know, the great thing about Wong Kar Wai is, you know, there's shots of clocks that will go on for like five or ten seconds, and it's like it's Siemens, and you know, it's like you're just watching the passage of time, and maybe there's like uh, a little plume of smoke coming up from the, from Tony Lung's character or whatever. But it's like that shot tells you so much. Can I? I also yeah, you know, like, he's very interested in repetition. Speaking of which, I do want to say this: if, if one thing, I think Wong Kar Wai might be the last filmmaker to make smoking unambiguously just the coolest fucking thing ever. Like I'm, mm. I'm not pro smoking. I've never smoked. I don't that But when I was just watching those movies, I'm like, yeah, like fucking. I'm glad that there's someone left who makes, you know, who makes movies where it's just smoking is just so fucking great looking. It's so cinematic. Well, you know, the thing about smoking is like um, killing people also looks awesome on film. <laughs> yeah, uh, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean I advocate for death. Right. But, yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure film has caused more smokers than it caused murderers. Yeah. Oh, I think there's people um, getting killed right now. Yeah. Out, outside. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I live in Hollywood, and uh, uh, <laughs> I'm right under the Hollywood sign. In that whole area, it's you know it's been very warm, so there's. Uh, strong possibility there's burning bushes everywhere. Nice. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, the the vitality of this of the Hong Kong backdrop is just so beautifully captured. But I just love the fact that Wong Kar Wai also manages to, you know, look very in depth and very closely at the internal states of these characters. And we've brought up empathy many times here, but it's also. He, he he captures the sort of alienation that each character goes through within the space of the city, and uh, they struggle they struggle to sort of articulate themselves and find their place and identity within this urban landscape. And I really love it when filmmakers can do that in a show don't it, it tell that, kind it, of. It helps that Hong Kong is such so intense. Now, yeah. I'm sorry, Damon. Before you were you going to say something about smoking because I I am interested in. Well, I, I you know I, I, yeah no he's definitely one. of the great and, and I think that's awesome too because it ties into I think uh, you know 1930s and 40s cinema it's like oh, sure. uh, you know basically until the last 20 years um, smoking was always the coolest thing in movies you know from Jean-Paul Belmondo to Humphrey Bogart uh, you know Betty Davis Kevin Hepburn, and they all looked awesome smoking on screen um, yeah and I yeah it's a romantic it looks great Smoke looks great. Yeah, the practical realities are often less appealing. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, his, his films you know, are very romantic, now I, feeling, and I, sensual, too. Now, Damon, I do want to talk to you about Happy Together, because Happy Together is probably... I, I'm, I wouldn't say... I think, it's, I think it's more interesting, and I think I enjoyed it more than... Um, it, it feels uh, than sort of the more staid uh, feeling of days of, of being wild, but... You 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 expressed before we started recording that uh, Happy Together is actually your favorite Wong Kar Wai movie. So I'd really like to 
sort of hear sort of how you feel about that film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna, I, I do want to say that it sounds like we're getting closer to wrapping up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say, though, that uh, Wong Kar Wai, um, one of the things I, I love about him is he's a great director of women. Oh, yes. And maybe, maybe one of the best directors of women working today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's partly because all his female characters um, have character. You know, they're not just yeah. there to again, fulfill sort of the uh, he, you know heterosexual normalcy of, of, of the main character or whatever. Um, and you know, Maggie Chung. I mean, it's it's an incredible it's an incredible performance. And you know, Tony Leung is one of the great romantic figures of our time, but you know, she's just incredible in this. Um, the thing that I love so much about Happy Together is that, um, you know, we're talking about making sort of the uncinematic cinematic, and um, Happy Together is about a relationship that doesn't work, uh, but proves functional at times. And what I love about the movie, um, aside from the fact that it's... Uh, it's probably, uh, I mean, it or In the Mood for Love are probably his best shot movies. Um, and the use of black and white photography is absolutely stunning. And uh, another thing that he is an absolute master of, which we haven't really talked about, is soundtrack. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, it's like I've never been a big Frank Zappa fan. Uh, but he uses two Frank Zappa tracks just absolutely perfectly. Yes. Uh, and he also uses sections of those songs much like Scorsese with Layla, but, you know, uh, more people know Layla than they do Frank Zappa. But you know, just his use of, um, I've been in you, uh, and then I, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the other one. It's, you know, he's just using that stuff and, oh, kills me. Also, Astor Piazzolla, I mean, seriously, Tango Passanato is, is such a masterful cue, matched really only by Yumi's y- y- theme, uh, for in the mood for love, of just you know the the use of the uh, equipment, it just blows my mind. Um, but I, again, back to the cinematic uh, versus uncinematic. I love the fact that he shows the power struggle um, between two people in a relationship, uh, and you know, just the whole passage where um, um, Leslie uh, Leslie Chung has uh, the broken arms. Uh, and the way they get back at each other and, um, you know, how they, they're both trying to control the relationship. And you've got Tony Lung's character who's, you know, very much the Wong Kar Wai protagonist, sort of the passive but quietly fuming lover versus the sort of outward, um, you know, let, let's just take it as it comes kind of guy. Um, it just it speaks to me that I've never seen a movie like that. I've never seen a movie addressed. Uh, movies are often about love, um, but they're rarely about the consequences of that love. You know, consummation is generally the end of most narratives. You know, it's like the couple get together so they can fuck. And then, you know, or they get married, which is essentially now they can fuck. Right. Um, <laughs> just coded just coded differently. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's great about this is it's about sort of the consequences of being in a relationship. Um, sure, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, name another. I mean, you, you know, many cast of values with, um, you know, um, the uh, General Rollins film. Uh, um, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, a woman under the influence. Face. Yes. Yeah. 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 Woman under the influence. 
that shows, you know, a marriage and sort of, you know, the problems of, of, of relationship. But I, I'm trying to think of another, uh, another movie where it is so expressly about why relationships don't work. Um, I wrote about it once and, you know, it's like one of those moments I had growing up that seems absolutely immature now is why doesn't it take the same amount of time for everyone to have an orgasm? <laughs> and it's that like, well, well, cause, you know, it's like I just started having them, so I, I don't, I don't know how they function. Uh, or I didn't at the time. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there now. Yeah, you know, uh, I have a pretty good handle on it. You, you but, got um, a handle on it, so to speak. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's like, uh, why can't we be in love at the same time with you know, and and how relationships have ebbs and flows and, and how you feel about people that you love and how you might hate them, you know, and, mm. and how that hate is actually kind of sometimes fuel for that love. Um, you know, um, how, how come they cannot be as the title makes it fairly obvious, happy together. They can be happy for brief moments and they, they obviously can fuck, but you know, it's, it's about, it's about the struggle to, stay in love and stay in a relationship and how sometimes people match up in ways that totally make sense, but then uh, prove completely dysfunctional, you know, uh, in some ways, Leslie Chung is a manic pixie dream girl, but it's also, I think the most perfect representation of someone who is outgoing with someone who is more inward right? and how that relationship gets into problems because, you know, people want to, because control. That's 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 a really interesting insight. I don't think I even took into the movie, but yeah, like I, I you know, I, I've been in a long term you know relationship for for four years now, and most of the problems come from the fact not that you don't you know that you that you disagree. The problems come from that you love the person, and that makes you unable to do things. You know, you just get so frustrated because I wish I could just logically do this, but I can't because I love you, and I'm stuck loving you. I'm for better yeah. or for worse. I'm I'm there. I'm already there, and there's there's no easy way, you know. I, and that's that's true. Like it, you break up with people, but you know, for for months and months, maybe even a year after the breakup, you're still stuck loving the person. Yeah, and you've been programmed. And I do. I, I love the way that but in they, the good, in the best way possible. I do love the way that Wong Kar Wai uses Argentina and sort of mm-hmm. their expatriate sort of status to make it feel inevitable that they're going to come back to each other because they're because there's not enough, you know, there's not a you know, the, the, there's not a lot of people who speak Chinese. There's not a lot of people who, who speak their language. Yeah. And there's, it just makes it feel like, yes, they're going to come back to each other because they're not in their element. The only element they have is together. And I do like that, like, honestly, it's 2012 and there aren't many movies about gay relationships where the where the premise isn't, this is a gay relationship and this is what happens in a gay relationship. And, yeah. and this well, is that's treated very humanly. Again, that's that's one of the most awesome things about the movie is that, it, especially you know, in the '90s where people were making the worst gay films in the history of gay cinema, and gay cinema really hasn't been around that long. Um, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. people, it was it, all it, it, it was it was all evangelical, and it was all it was all issue driven, and it's yeah. Well, it's it's you know, Todd Haynes emerged from it, and to an extent, Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Though mm-hmm. he's never especially in the early career, never made movies that were explicitly homosexual. I think, I think that's because so much of what that cinema was, much like the black cinema boom in the early 90s, was it's like, hey, we're making a movie about gay people um, doing the exact same things as straight people. 
Hey, but they're gay. Yeah. See? <laughs> like, See? like the like the appeal is supposed to be that mm-hmm. it's crazy that gay people are the same as straight people, you know, and and, and like thematically, it's, it's like that's not really interesting. And I, yeah, he, you know, not only did he make a movie about gay people where you know, yeah, it's just they're gay. Okay. Never, right. never comes up the fact that you know the fact there there's no moments where they're struggling with their homosexual like uh, last. Yeah. They're struggling la- la- like a our, regular not last, relationship. Not last episode, but two episodes ago we did with Phil Noble Jr. We did on William Friedkin. We talked about sort of the cruising cruising and boys yeah. in the band. And and and, and so it, there's no moments where they're struggling with their sexuality. There's no moments where they feel ostracized because they are gay. It's, it's a it, non-issue. But, but it is this great context where both act in ways where they're you know, in the 90s, they're in a foreign country. You know, it's like with the Cheng Chen plot, um, or with outsiders. There, there definitely there's this level of skittishness to not wanting to admit um, their sexuality. Like it just it, like it, they they try and keep it from coming up, um, and I, I think that's great. That's that's the most of it. And then of course, Wong Kar Wai does the best possible thing. He's like, okay, yeah, it's a movie about gay people. Um, so what does he do? He opens First scene in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> They're fucking, nice. it's like, hey, are you in or are you out? You know, exactly. let's, let's get this over with. This Did isn't going to be some shocking climax later. We're not going to show them an over. Well, they're but, in, all right. Uh, we're and in, also, and that's I mean, it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's Leslie Chung spitting in his hand to lube up the guy's asshole. Again, right? I just awesome. get this sense of empathy from him in general towards everybody, <laughs> women, uh, gays. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. Assholes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, well, that's, that's what I love about him, and that's... And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed it happens in a gay movie, but again, it's like a, normally if you watch the movie like this, you'd have maybe them quarreling, but then finding the thing that keeps them together. And the end of the movie is no, they're broken up, broken up, and you really don't even know what happened to Leslie Leslie Chung's character. I know that uh, again, this was a movie that was three and a half hours long at some point. Both both were strung out, and I think that's why they left Hong Kong, but that's never actually mentioned in the film or dealt with. Um, that uh, yeah, they, they were both drug addicts, and so it's quite possible that at the end of the movie, in, in, in a different cut, uh, the Leslie Chun character is dead. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. So but then I, it becomes yeah, not it, it becomes about his his friendship with uh, Cheng Chen, who uh, yeah, again, that's actually one of the great things is like, does he like him as a friend or does he want to fuck him or is it both? And it and it is both. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's never, it's never, an, it's never a binary. It's always complicated and mixed up. And um, absolutely, yeah. So I was so happy to discover Wong Kar Wai. I don't think I've been this happy to discover a director since we way Ralph back- Bakshi. Well, no, Ralph, <laughs> Ralph, uh, Ralph Bakshi is a crazy person, and well, it's yeah. exciting to watch his movies. But I don't have an intense love for them like I do for Wong Kar Wai. I do too. I, I, I completely I agree. Think I haven't really been attached to a filmmaker's uh, work since uh, we covered Almo Dovar. And I really first dove into his work. Um, well, I think you I think dove into his yeah. work. Actually, to me, it's sort of like Russ Meyer, where it's like mm-hmm. uh, I love it theoretically, practically. There are a couple of films I like. You know, yeah. Um, well, the sure. thing about we, I mean, you know, Baxter was our last episode. Like the thing about him is just he's he fucking was so like he because he made the dirty cartoons where the animals fucked. Like no one will acknowledge that he broke so much animation ground um, yeah. and sort of and the way that oh I'm going to do animation and that's going to allow me to 
do things that I wouldn't be able to do live action. Like that's what Adult Swim is. That's what Ren and Stimpy is. That's what all these things are where you smuggle in these kinds of crazy subversive things. So I yeah, and like I said, well, I, I emotionally respond more to one car. Right, no, no. Like I say, I'm not a big, I'm not a huge fan of, and I we we talked about American Pop, and I that's certainly a film that grew on me the more I watched it. But I don't think Ralph Bakshi is a master filmmaker. He's just more influential yeah. and more. Right. Well, I just think no, he no, creates no. these one uh, one car. Why just creates these wonderful sort of like dreamscapes that, like I said, like. He, he, they did feel like a co- combination of like Godard and Malick, but unlike uh, unlike Godard, he, he focuses more on the humanity, and unlike Malick, he focuses more on the internal environment that the, that the characters are, are going through. And I like that he had, he approaches them each with empathy, and uh, each each movie is its its own sort of a unique world, but they feel familiar in a way because they're all thematically similar. So, and I think Sofia Coppola should cut Wong Kar Wai a check, <laughs> <laughs> especially for the loss in translation. So. Well, she, she definitely thanked him uh, during her acceptance speech. Um, As well, she should. <laughs> that's, I, I love, like, one of the great things about the Academy Awards is movies win awards because they want them to win awards, but often for the, for the worst element or least essential element of the movie. And it's like lost in translation won an Oscar for best screenplay and, you know, Kim Basinger won uh, the best supporting actress Oscar for LA confidential. And it's like, when you look at those films, it's like, wow, how did they give it to that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, you're a good point. You're going to award point. one thing. Why that? I don't know. Well, let's give our top three. Uh, yeah. We like, why films uh, we like here. to close every episode. We give our top three films of the filmmakers over. I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. My top, and this is subject to change as oh, yeah. I think your appreciation of Wong Kar Wai films change. I did get a chance to see ha- uh, not happy in the mood for love twice, and it again, I, it's the kind of uh, he has the kind of filmography that just grows deeper the more you watch them. So, but uh, right now, my my number one is Fallen Angels. My number two is In the Mood for Love, and my number three is uh, Chung King Express. And for me, probably because it was the first I saw. Um, number one will probably always be Chungking Express. It's one of my top 30 favorite movies of all time. Number two is In the Mood for Love. And number three, I th- it's a tough call between Happy Together and Fallen Angels, but I'm probably going to go with Fallen Angels for number three. Well, uh, if push comes to shove, I'm going to go with number one, Happy Together, because I have to. Number two, In the Mood for Love. And number three... Uh, I'm sort of torn before uh, between going Days of Being Wild and 2046. Ooh, interesting. Cool. We, uh, you know, Wong Kar Wai is someone we can visit again because I really did. I think Days of Being Wild is a very interesting movie. Yeah. Um, especially you talked. You, you know, Damon talks about how Wong Kar Wai works so well with actresses and he writes such great female characters. I think that movie, uh, more than anything, the female characters are so great. Um, mm-hmm. I, you don't get a scene. Angry. You don't get a scene where the sort of the the man-child, uh, the roguish kind of handsome man-child bring, takes home a dancer and the whole thing is shot from the dancer's perspective. But, yeah, no, good point. But that whole sequence, <laughs> that whole sequence yeah. is all from about I her. It's not about him and how cool he is or whatever. It's about her. Right. Um, so I, I like that movie. I like that movie quite a bit even if I feel it, it's a little more uh, subdued and a little, little less of his 
um, visual flair. Yes, right. sort of shines. I through. like that. He's. I like that within the mood for love and uh, days of being wilder a little bit more. And I, less I, I visually really stylish. Like, as, as much as I hate the step print processing, the sort of that sort of uh, stroby slow motion effect. I really want to see Ashes of Time because the idea of him doing a samurai period piece wuja. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Is, I didn't get to see that one. Um, you, you, they re-released it. Um, that's how I got a chance to talk to one for a while. Uh, uh, so, you know, if you guys are curious, just look up uh, Chud Wong uh, for a while. You can read me talking to him. Um, I, I really like Ashes of Time. I, he didn't make a movie. He, he doesn't make movies I don't like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I think though it's, it's one of those things. That, I mean, like 2046 is it's like you really have to be on a wavelength. You have to be on his wavelength. Um, and, I mean, I think all... But all films, all great films require you to sort of uh, uh, contribute, I think, to the narrative. And 2046 is sort of this continuation of uh, his themes in, of longing and um, frustration with sexuality and how it works and how it doesn't work. Um, so I definitely... Uh, I really like that movie, but... One Kurt Wise is also one of those guys where it's like I could watch Fallen Angels tomorrow and be like, this is my favorite of his movies. I could also watch it tomorrow and go like, ah, you know, it's just a bad time to watch that movie and I don't like it right now. That's true. Um, you really, it's, it's really, it, it is can about, be important to be on the right emo- emotional light. Well, he makes mood pieces, you know, and that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. You have to be in a certain mood to a, a, enjoy a particular movie of his. Damon, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, and I'm very apologetic for the technical difficulties we had. It's all right. You know, it's it's funny to me. I've probably known you for five years, maybe longer. I, I don't remember when you joined Chud. Um, that was about 2007, so the, yeah. The chance to, like, talk to people that you've known but don't actually know is it's always sort of a pleasure for me yeah Um, same here it's certainly been a pleasure i've discovered in doing this show that it's like oh yeah no we could be real friends not just online right (laughs) it's good to hear the vocal inflections and the audio version of people as well that's very important The, the, you know, it's like having written, it's like sometimes you meet people say, oh, I'm on your work, and you're just kind of like, uh, this freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I, t- I took a pseudonym so, like, I could just tell the people I wanted to know, not not so people knew who I was, but, you know, what are you going to do? Um, so where can we find uh, more of your uh, writing and your work, and where can my we follow mu- you? My musings? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, I write, uh, I'm, the, I'm the editor of uh, Screen Crash during the evenings. Um, so I do a, quite a bit of stuff for Screen Crush. I also write for Screen Crave, where I do news and uh, movie reviews. Uh, you can find my review of Master there. They have a format I'm not particularly crazy about, but uh, I like getting paid. I like, yeah. I like, the, I like the fact that you know, after writing online for twelve some years, like uh, I now make a living at it. So you know, I'm happy about that. Um, I also still do uh, Blu-ray reviews for Collider under the name Andre Della Morte. But if you're, you know, if you, you know, like what I'm saying, I'm on Twitter at um, Houx H O U X. You're very good at you're very good at Twitter. Um, yeah, my, we, we both follow you. Then. One of my one of the funniest oh, funniest people I know, uh, Daniel Kibblesmith. He uh, he's amazing. He's a very he's a comedian. He's really good at Twitter. He said it's sort of a combination of a newspaper headline and a haiku. And I feel that you do that very well as far as distilling your thoughts on movies into um, that sort of format. Completely agree. Everybody should follow him. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Bite-sized so, pieces. Right. All right, and uh, follow, you can follow me at Instant Jim. I'm at Patrick Rapol. And please send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can read our site, directorsclubpodcast.com. I won't flatter Gabe Powers' excellent uh, columns that he does for us again. But you know he what? Because he gets very embarrassed when I do it. But Oh, no, he shouldn't. But you know what? You get Just to- so you know, he's really good. He's fucking great at it. Yeah. He's so amazing. But you know what? You get to hear him very soon. That's right. Our next episode is going to be on Mario Bava, where Gabe Powers, who I would say his specialty is Italian horror. I think so. He's going to be dropping some knowledge. I think we're going to be talking about Blood and Black Lace and uh, Black Sunday, but up in the oh, air at this point. Oh, yeah. So. I have a feeling Mario Bava might have to be a two-parter again because uh, he's got quite the filmography. Yeah, he's kind of like, really he's, excited. He's kind of like John Carpenter in that he he sort of approached filmmaking as a as a journeyman, but he just sort of proved to proved himself in sort of one area. Yeah, uh, I, and it, I'm excited to discover him too. Have to say, favorite Bava, Danger Diabolique. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, that's what that was the big debate was: do we do uh, Bay of Blood? Do we do Danger Diabolique? Do we? Uh, is Bay of Blood do, the same as Twitch of the Death? Yes, it okay, is. Okay, that's the one I've seen. I well, like it. I, the, the thing about it is, uh, from your perspective, not to, you know, it's like covering John Carpenter, you, you know, it's like Assault on Precinct 13 is great, but you kind of want to stick to, you know, like, I think that's a great film, but, you know, horror stuff, I guess, or. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, people get a double dose this month because they're getting Mario Bava and John Carpenter. That's right, because we did three we weeks. Did, we did John Carpenter uh, last year with uh, with Phil Noble Jr. and we did uh, Halloween and we did Escape from New York. And this uh, this year we're doing John a second episode of John Carpenter. And we're doing uh, They Live in the Thing. No, we're doing The Thing and Escape from L.A. No, we're not doing Escape from L.A. God damn you, I'm not doing that. Oh fuck! I wanted Jay Shield to defend Escape from L.A. You can so take maybe your, maybe towards the end of the episode. You can take your CGI shark and shove it, Jim. Well, he loves uh, it. <laughs> I I like Escape from L.A. Oh really? Oh man, there are people <laughs> yeah. out there. Wow. I don't I don't understand them, but I guess they are out there. Well, we love him. I, it's it's he's like he's in on the joke. Everybody's in on the joke. Oh, I, mean, I don't find it funny. I don't think it's a very funny joke, <laughs> except for the uh, Beverly Hills plastic general surgeon scene. Like mm. I think mostly it falls flat. Yeah, but See, the, my my whole thing about Escape from LA is that um, I think it's really unfortunate that people think Snake Plissken is a badass. Yeah, and so I I feel like Escape from LA is basically. Carpenter saying, "You guys realize when we did this the first time, we were kidding." <laughs> um, Good point. This is a joke. He's playing uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, and I think I think in the second film, it's more just like, yeah, he's sh- he's shooting fucking hoops. It's, okay? it's, it's, it's sort of the, it's sort of the way Toby Hooper made Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, where he goes, "This exactly. is the movie you thought you saw, <laughs> but it wasn't." Well, I, okay. I, I also, I mean, I think with Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, besides the fact that. There were so many drugs, and they had the shortest production schedule since, like, Paranormal Activity 2 or 3. Um, like, literally, they were in theaters, I think, 60 days after finishing shooting, uh, which, with 35 millimeter film, is insane. Um, that movie, it's just like, how do you fucking make a sequel? You don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. 
Well, we're ready to wrap things up, so thank you so much, Damon, again for being on the show. And uh, Not a problem. All right. Well, see you in two weeks, everybody, for the Mario Bava episode. I'm excited. I am, too. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.